So once again, good morning. It's great to see you guys today. Uh, if you're a first-time guest with us or we just haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Jimmy. I'm the lead pastor here at Rocky River, and uh, I like to say that whether you're a first-time guest, long-time member, or somewhere in between, doesn't really matter. We're just really glad that you guys are here today. If you haven't already, find your message notes, take those out, and uh, we're going to finish up uh, just a really short series. Thank you, Diego. You're a, a gentleman and a scholar. Thank you. We're, we're finishing up a message we started just a couple of weeks ago called What I Need to Succeed. This is message number three of a three-part series. Now, next week, and I may say uh, a little more about this later, but next week, um, the series, it's, it's kind of the same series, but we're going to make just a little bit of a transition, and I'm going to teach a message called the life God blesses. We're going to look at the life of Noah, which is in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. So if you want to get ahead of next week, I would encourage you to read Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. But today we're going to talk about what I need to succeed. The Bible says in Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no vision, do you know it? The people perish. Where there is no vision, the people perish. You know what that means? It means where there is no vision, people perish. It means there's chaos. And that's true whether you're talking about an organization, or whether you're talking about a church, or whether you're talking about your individual life or my individual life. If there is no vision, if there is no dream, well, there's chaos, there's panic. Every person, listen to me, every person needs something to aim their life at. Every person needs a dream, a vision to aim their life at. And listen, if we don't have that, if we don't have that, our lives begin to break down. People break down. We, we get lazy. We lose our commitment. We lose hope. But when we don't have something to push for, to work toward, we get weak, we wither, we even die. I read a, a study pretty recently that showed that this was a, a study about men, so I'm not sure what the numbers will be for women, but let's just say they're reasonably close, that men, after they retire, if they don't have something to retire to, if, if there's not something to, to get them up in the morning, if there's not something that excites them, if there's not something to work toward, they die within three years on average. That means that we all need something to aim our lives at. We need a dream. We need a vision. So what is a vision? What is, what is a dream? What are we really talking about here? A dream is a picture of what is not yet but should be. It's about something that hasn't happened, but it needs to happen. Something that someone ought to do. This is kind of a bold statement, but I believe what I'm about to tell you. There is nothing more dangerous or more destructive or more wasteful than a visionless life. And the only thing worse than not reaching your dream or accomplishing your vision is to not have a dream at all. If you were here last week, you know that Dylan Hudgens, uh, 
young man who grew up in our church, he had to go to St. Jude's Children's Hospital in Memphis. He had tests this week, and uh, two and a half years ago, he was diagnosed with leukemia. He's been through two and a half years of treatments, and uh, everything went great this week. They had a a party for him on Thursday night in Memphis at St. Jude's, so uh, my son James and I drove there. James and Dylan have been great friends since they were just little kids, and so we were there for the party, and uh, thank the Lord there's a lot to celebrate, and this coming Thursday, he has one or two things that he has to do at St. Jude's Extension here in Charlotte, but on Thursday sometime around noon, he's going to get to ring the cancer remission bell, so praise the Lord for that. So James and I were there for a couple of days. We drove home yesterday. Friday night, we went to uh, Central Barbecue in Memphis. Anybody ever been to Central Barbecue in Memphis? It's good stuff. It's, it's really good. I, I like that. I'd eaten there once before. Uh, we went to their downtown location, which is located beside the Lorraine Hotel. A- anyone know what the Lorraine Hotel is famous for? Well, it's a civil rights museum now. It's where Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated on April 4th, 1968. It's quite a place to see, quite a place to, to, to visit. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream. And his dream changed the world. It certainly changed America. But he stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial on August 28th, 1963 and said, I have a dream. And it's like those words came to life and began to vibrate and make a difference. And again, his dream changed our nation and changed the world. And thank God for it. There's another man in Memphis who had a dream. In the early 1960s, a young nightclub comedian, singer, songwriter, actor, he he had some success, but he felt like there was no real direction in his life. He he felt like his life had no real meaning. And so Danny Thomas began to pray about direction for his life. What resulted was the opening of St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital in Memphis in 1962. And today, because of a dream, millions of families, millions of children and their families come from all over the world to this pediatric treatment and research hospital that focuses on children's catastrophic diseases, but especially leukemia and cancer. And uh, while we were there this week, uh, and I'd been on the campus before, but I'd never really spent much time in the hospital, and it's just an amazing place. It takes $2.8 million a day to run that facility, but the children and their families that are being treated there, they don't pay a penny for it. That was part of the dream, that anyone would be able to come there because they don't have to pay for it. He decided he would raise the money, and he did, and they have just a tremendous money-raising fund-raising arm at St. Jude's Children's Hospital, and it's it's just incredible, just incredible. And it started with a dream. 
Anything that gets done in the world that's worthwhile, it starts when someone has a dream. Genesis 24 is all about a dream. It's about a vision. And it doesn't start in Genesis 24. It actually starts in Genesis 17. In Genesis 17, God made a promise to Abraham. Say Abraham. And the promise was that he would have a family. Now, that was a big deal in and of itself because at that time, it was Abraham and Sarah. And they had tried to have children, but they were not able to. Abraham was raising his nephew Lot as though he was his son so that one day when he died, he would have someone in the family that would receive his inheritance. But they had no children of their own. And God said, not only are you going to have a family, but you're going to have a family that grows so large that that family becomes a nation. And that nation will one day be the nation that blesses the whole world. Now, actually, Abraham became the father of two great nations. Through Ishmael, he's the father of the Arabs. Through Isaac, he's the father of the Jews. So two great families. But the promise that God had made, and it's a messianic promise, the promise he made was through Isaac and his children. The promise, the blessing, was that the Messiah would come from their family, Jesus That's how God has blessed the world through that man and that woman, their faithfulness and their obedience through that family that became a nation. We have Jesus, the Messiah, who is available to all of us, Jew or Gentile. When Genesis 24 opens up, there's a problem. The problem is that now um, Abraham is not 100 years old anymore. He's considerably older. He's 140 Isaac is somewhere around age 40, and he has no wife. And you guys see the biological problem here, right? Uh, Isaac doesn't have a wife, so they have no children. For Abraham, that means no grandchildren. And the, the, the problem gets bigger in that this whole dream, this whole promise that God has made to Abraham seems to be in jeopardy. And we don't know all of the details about why, but God worked it out with, or I'm sorry, Abraham worked it out with his head of household, Eleazar, to go back to the land that Abraham was from and there find a wife for his son, Isaac. And Genesis 24 is just a classic chapter uh, in the scriptures about having a dream, having a vision, and accomplishing those dreams or that vision. It's a chapter about success, And I know that sometimes we don't like to hear the word success in church because of the different theologies out there about buying a blessing and you make it all about you. But that's not what I'm talking about. The word success is used in this chapter alone five different times. Let me tell you something. When God gives you a vision, when God gives you a dream, when God gives you goals, he wants you to have success. He wants you to be successful because that dream, that vision, that goal, it's not just about you. It's about others. And over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about a number of different principles, different action steps from this chapter. And today I want to give you two more. Well, in your notes it says two more, but I'm going to give you maybe three or four. So the back section on your notes where it says my notes, where it's blank, 
you're going to use all that space today. Uh, so I have, a, I have a lot I want to give you because I know I'm not going to be in Genesis 24 for a long time. And so I want to give you what I have. I want to give you what I've been learning, what I think God wants us to share. I've been excited about this message all week long. So are you ready? I mean, are you ready? All right. Here it goes. If you're taking notes, write this down. If you're not taking notes, write it down anyway. Yes, right. Here, here is the first principle. Identify the obstacles. Identify the obstacles. Identify the problems. Now, you don't do this up front. We've talked about that. The first thing you do is you figure out the, the what. What is God wanting me to do? And then, and then you figure out the why. Because once you know why you're doing something, it's the why that takes you through the hard times. If you don't know why your dream or your vision matters, then when things get tough, when you come against obstacles, and you will come against obstacles, if you don't know why your vision or your dream is important, you will quit. But at some point in the vision dreaming process, you have to identify the obstacles. Another way of saying this is you have to see what the problems are going to be. You have to anticipate some of the things that you're going to encounter along the way. Eleazar ran up against problems. He had some obstacles. He had some things he had to overcome. I mean, think about it. One of the obstacles is just how do you find this girl? They didn't have a name. They didn't have a picture ID. They didn't have a specific address. He just knew the general area. Then once they located the girl that he believed was the one that God wanted uh, to marry Isaac, then he had to convince her to go back. Then he had to convince her parents to let her go back. I mean, there are obstacles here that he had to face. And in your vision, your dream, on the way to accomplishing it, you're going to have obstacles. You're going to hit roadblocks. You're just going to have things that pop up. And let me tell you something. I promise you that if you are chasing after a God-given vision for your life, you're going to meet opposition, Satan is never going to look at you and say, oh, he wants to go into the ministry. Isn't that sweet? Let's just let him do it. Let's just, let's don't get, oh, he wants a church, uh, to plant a church. Oh, that's cute. Listen, we've got other things in the world that we can uh, try to overrun and, and make miserable. Let's just let this guy have a, a smooth path to accomplishing this vision. Satan never does that. He will come against you. And, um, you know, I've always heard this, and I believe it's true. If you never run into the devil, that, that should be a red flag in your life. Because if you're never running into him, you might be running in the same direction with him. One of the proofs that God has given you that vision, that dream, that mission to chase down is the opposition. Let me tell you what I think is one of the, one of the, the biggest obstacles to accomplishing a, a vision. 
it's that sometimes the circumstances of where you are right now don't seem to match up with the future in your vision. Maybe a better way of saying it is you can't figure out how you get from where you are to where your vision is going. You're in a circumstance that just seems impossible. And you're thinking, how, how do these things work out? And that can cause you to be frustrated. Uh, it, it can cause you, it's fake evidence. It's, it's false evidence. It's sometimes because you can't figure out how to get from where you are to where the dream is, you think, well, maybe this is not God's dream after all. And so you're tempted to abandon it or look for plan B instead of God's plan A for your life. One of the, one of the guys I think about here is Joseph. If you've never read the Joseph stories in Genesis, you, you should go read them. Almost the, the second half of the book is dedicated to Joseph. So Joseph has a dream that God gives him when he's 17 years old. A dream, a promise. Then as a young teenager, or a, well, a middle-aged teenager, sort of the end of his teen years, his brother sold him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. And he has to think, this could be the end of my life. But he doesn't work that way. He doesn't live his life like that's the end. He keeps going. Eventually, he finds himself in Potiphar's home. Potiphar's probably the number two, three, maybe fourth man in all of Egypt. While Joseph is living in Potiphar's household, he has a run-in with the housewives of Egypt. And uh, the pharaoh's... Well, not the Pharaoh, but Potiphar's wife um, has a thing for Joseph. But Joseph wants to remain faithful to God, and so he is not receptive to her sexual advances. And so one day she frames him and accuses him of rape, where he's then thrown into the Pharaoh's prison, presumably for the rest of his life. And listen, it's a great story of faith. It's a story about how a guy goes from the prison to the palace. But I'm telling you, Joseph didn't sit in that prison cell every day singing hymns, uh, amazing grace, and just thinking, just any old day, things are going to work out my way. There had, because he's human, there had to be times in there where he is destitute in his thoughts. There has to be moments of crisis of belief in that prison. There had to be. He wouldn't be human if he didn't. There had to have been times where he thought, God promised me this. How in the world do I get from this prison to that palace? But he did. Thank you. 
that kind of connects us to the next principle. And then it's going to get a little bit gray here because I'm going to mix all of this in because I just have some preaching points I'm going to give you. But here, here is the second principle for today. Be patient and be persistent. When you're in a season of your life, when, when the circumstances of your life just don't seem to make sense or you don't see how they connect to the future, you have to be patient and be persistent. Patient means that you wait on God. Persistent means that you do what you can until those circumstances change. So what did that look like for Joseph? Well, for, for Joseph, he couldn't make the big steps. He's in prison. He, he's, he's bound by what he can do in prison. But listen, instead of sitting around there and patiently waiting and doing nothing, he was patiently waiting, but he was doing something. He was being persistent. He was doing the things in prison that he could do. Specifically, he helped other people with their dreams. And I'm thinking about the baker. With the baker through interpreting the baker's dream and helping him, him with that, eventually the baker was set free. Now, instead of going to the Pharaoh like Joseph had asked him to do and say, hey, let the Pharaoh know that I'm in here, I'm wrongly imprisoned. Instead, years later, something happened with the Pharaoh and the baker remembered the guy Joseph, the guy he had forgotten about. And sometimes that happens, doesn't it? You help your buddy out, you help your girlfriend out, they get out of their situation, and once they're set free, they forget all about you. Well, that's what happened to Joseph. But then years later, this baker remembered the guy Joseph once the Pharaoh had a dream he needed help with. And so the rest of that story becomes history, and you should go back and read it. They come and they get Joseph, they clean him up, he goes, and then he helps the Pharaoh with his dream, and then God starts to fulfill Joseph's dream. You know, there's a principle here. It's a business principle. You see it all the time in business. You hear different guys talk about it, Stephen Covey and Jim Collins and others. They talk about the way to get what you want is to help enough, enough other people get what they want. But the principle goes all the way back to Genesis and, and what it really is, you help other people with your dreams and sometimes God uses your help in helping them to help you accomplish your dreams, your visions. Why, why does that work? It's because your dreams are never just about you. Your dreams are about others. And one way to test whether or not your dream, your vision, your mission is from God or not is you ask the question, is this about me or is it about others including me? Because God will never give you something to spend the rest of your life on that's only about you. And when you're being patient, you have to remember that those circumstances may be the circumstances today, but not from now on. Seasons come and seasons go. Let me give you a couple of examples. What time did this service start? Is it 10.30? All right, I'm just looking at the clock on the wall back there, trying to remember how much time I have. Sometimes you get in a preaching fog up here, and you're like, 
I don't even remember what today is, but it must be Sunday because there's people here listening to me. In Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 4, a woman has a baby. The woman is married to a priest named Phineas. Say Phineas. Phineas and his brother were priests under Eli. Eli was the head priest in the temple at the shrine in Shiloh. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was located. The Ark of the Covenant, uh, before Indiana Jones found it, and it was stored in a warehouse somewhere in the United States, It was at Shiloh. It it represented the glory of God, the presence, the power of God. Because of the wickedness of the priests, God allowed for the Philistines to come in and take the Ark of the Covenant captive and move it out of Shiloh. They took it back into their lands and put it into um, one of their and to the temple of one of their pagan gods. It would, it, would be, it would be similar, similar, but not exactly the same. It would be similar to us being invaded by another country, and they go to the National Archives and take the original Declaration of Independence with them back to their home country. This was devastating for them. Well, Phineas's wife gave birth. She was, parent, uh, she was pregnant. And apparently, the trauma of all of this sent her into labor. Same day as the ark was taken. And she named the baby Ichabod. Not Ichabod Crane. Ichabod. Say Ichabod. Ichabod means... The glory is gone. Now think about that. She's just named her baby. The glory is gone. She she just hanged uh, a title on him that is a an everyday reminder that the glory of God is gone. Every morning at the breakfast table, they look at Ichabod. The glory of God is gone. Every evening at mealtime, before going to bed, every day, 24-7, it's a reminder that the glory of God had gone. But she should have named him, the glory will return, because it did return. The Ark of the Covenant was taken for a season, but, from, but not forever. The Ark eventually came back. She should have named that little boy, the Lord will send his presence back. The Lord will return. The glory will come back. She should have pinned hope on him. Instead, she was just believing that her and her household and all the people of Israel would always live in that valley without the glory of God. You heard the name Joseph of Arimathea. It's in the New Testament. He was a rich man. 
He was a follower of Jesus. Jesus was buried after he died, after he was killed. In a rich man's tomb, a borrowed tomb, according to prophecy. Now, we don't have a conversation in the Gospels between Jesus and Joseph of Arimathea about where Jesus would be buried. But we know that Joseph offered up his tomb for Jesus to be buried in once he had been crucified. I'd love to know what that conversation was like. Hey, Joseph, I need to borrow your tomb. It's a rich man's tomb. It was only big enough for one man. That's how you know it's a rich man's tomb. Not a family grave, a grave for one man. Hey, uh, Joseph, I I need to borrow your, your tomb. Now, I've loaned some things out. Um, I don't loan out certain things like I wouldn't let you borrow one of my fountain pens. I have loaner pens. If you need to borrow one, I have a loaner pen. It's a loaner in that if I never get it back from you, I don't care. It's a cheap pen. Um, I would never let you borrow my golf clubs. But there are some things I would loan out to you. But how do you loan someone your grave? As a part of that conversation, there has to be something like, Joseph, I need to borrow your tomb, but I'm only going to need it for three days. You can have it back. I don't plan to be in there from now on. And so we don't know what was going through Joseph's mind, but Joseph was willing to say, okay, I don't know how all this works out, but I can let you borrow my tomb. You see the difference between Ichabod's mama and Joseph of Arimathea? Ichabod's mama bought the valley she was in. She didn't rent it. Jesus didn't buy his grave. He borrowed it. He wasn't planning to stay there. And if you're in a valley, if you feel like you're in a grave, don't plan to buy it. Rent it. Listen, if if you're struggling with depression, don't own it. Rent it. Don't make plans to be there the rest of your life. That valley may be the circumstances of your life right now, and you may have no idea how all this works out in the future. Ichabod's mama didn't either. Just determine that you're not going to own where you're at. You're just going to be here for a while. Have the mentality, have the faith in God that the circumstances will change, that the season will change. And look, you might be at a really tough place. Let me tell you what tough looked like to me this week. So James and I were at St. Jude's. We're in the family waiting room. 
and uh, four women, maybe in their, I can't really tell how old, how old people are, maybe in their early 30s, early mid-30s came in, and they had a little boy with them. He didn't have any hair. You know, you, you walk in the door, and immediately you see little kids that are going through chemo treatments. Well, they come in, they stay for a few minutes, but then, you know, all, all the, these girls, they all looked like sisters. I assumed that they were, but I mean, I had no idea. But I knew why they were there. He was in there sitting at the table playing with blocks. And after a few minutes, nurse called a name and little boy answered to it. Mom and little boy went out. The ladies that had been sitting at the table now moved over and they were sitting in chairs uh, just across from James and I. It was, it was only us at that point in the, in the waiting room. And so one of the ladies asked about something. And so it, it just opened up a conversation. And uh, I asked them about the little guy they were there with. She said they were not all related. Uh, they all worked together. They were from Houston, Texas. Uh, the little boy is four-year-old named Mathen. Um, two days after Christmas, he was diagnosed with a rare type of cancer that attacks the central nervous system. He has spots and tumors all over his spine, around his brain stem. Stage four. Hope that day was a really big word. That's all they got. Hope. You could tell they have faith in God. We talked about that. They suspected I was a pastor, which always makes me nervous because I'm like, do I stink or... <laughs> they have faith. Faith and hope. Man, talk about being in a valley. The mom and the little boy, they already know they're going to be there for a full year for treatment. And they, they don't know what happens, you know, in that year or if there's anything beyond that. And what's so difficult about your circumstances? I mean, none of us is true. None of us know what we have growing in our body right now. None of us know what we're going to face on our way home today. No, no, none of us know exactly what's going to happen tomorrow. But no matter what your circumstances are, trust, trust the Lord. Depend on him. You know, I, I think sometimes, I don't think God gives children brain cancer. I don't believe that at all. But I think God works in those circumstances. You want the answer, just so you walk out of here today and you don't get in your car and drive home and say, why does God let that happen? 
God lets that happen because we live in a broken, fallen world that we have created. God didn't create the world the way it is today. We wrecked it. We wrecked it. And people get cancer, not just 40-year-olds, not just 80-year-olds, but 4-year-olds because it is a broken, fallen world. But let me tell you something. Even those circumstances don't live forever. They don't last forever. Just like this world doesn't last forever. This isn't all there is. And the circumstances that you're facing right now, they won't last forever either. And, and just because your circumstances seem so tough and so hard or so bad, it doesn't mean that your life is over. Let me give you a couple of other things before we close. I see the clock. It's 1130. Just relax. You also need a plan. Write that down. You need a plan. And I, I think of the word plan as an acronym. Here's, here's what the acronym is. The P means pray it out. Pray it out. You better pray over that vision. You better pray over those dreams. You better know that they come from God. And if you don't pray it out, you better look out. Watch out. The bottom's going to fall out. One of the ways you know that God is leading you in a direction, that he's given you a dream, goals, or a vision, is you have prayed it out. The L is for lay it out. Write it out. The Bible says make your vision clear. Make it plain. They sell this stuff. I have some up here. It's paper. Remember paper? Oh, that's right. We don't live in a, in a paperless society, do we? We were told we were when the computer came out. But, but paper. Take paper and a pen and write out the plans. Write out your vision. Pray it out and lay it out. And then the A is for act it out. Do something about it. Take some actions. Listen, just like Joseph in that prison, he couldn't do the big things. He couldn't do anything beyond that prison cell. So what did he do? He, he did in that prison what he could do. He took smaller steps, and those smaller steps were helping other people with their dreams. Listen, let me tell you. Some, some of you, you want to do something big. But right now, at this time in your life, you can't take a big step. So you aren't doing anything. Why not? So if you have starting that business in mind, you don't have to go in tomorrow and quit your job. And if you better be a lot further along than just in that dreaming stage anyway. And if you don't believe that, there are some business owners in this room. I can hook you up with them and they can, they can tell you. You don't just quit everything tomorrow, but, but you have, there are some steps in between the dream and full-on go. There's, there are small steps between the big steps. Like some of you want to go back to college, and you're thinking, well, how am I ever going to pass chemistry? 
I hate science and math. I don't hate science and math people or teachers. But give me history, give me philosophy. That's my world. Not, you've heard me say it before, once you start adding the alphabet to the numbers, I'm, I'm done. So I know what it's like to worry about chemistry. I, I wasn't prepared to go to college. I would have never gone to college had God not called me into the ministry. And so here I am one day, I'm, you know, on a university campus thinking, I, I, I don't even know where to start. So I just took one step at a time. And eventually I made it through chemistry and algebra and I've never been more proud of C's in my life. (laughs) But some of of you, you're you're trying to figure out how are you going to make it through philosophy 101 or how are you going to make it through chemistry when when you haven't even filled out the application for registration. You're not enrolled in the school and you've already talked yourself out of it. Don't worry about just taking the big steps. Look, you'll get to chemistry when it comes up in the curriculum. You do the little things first. You act on the little things when you can't do the big things. First, get you an application. Fill it out. Send it in. Get started. And then the N is for navigate it out. Navigate it out. In other words, when the problems come up, you have to make adjustments. No way around that. It was a Prussian field commander. His last name was Moltke. He said back in the, I think it was the early 1900s, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. I like the way Mike Tyson said it. Everyone has a plan until he gets punched in the face. That's good right there. You had to write that down somewhere and just remember that. Remember something about Abraham and remember something about Jesus and remember something about Mike Tyson. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. That's why there's plan B. That's why there's plan C. That's why you make adjustments. When you run into problems, you just navigate Around those, you don't give up and you don't quit. Stop making excuses. Excuses are the crutches of the uncommitted. I don't know who said that, Kim Avant, but somebody said it and it's true. Stop making excuses. Here's another one. Never hitch your dreams to someone who's walking away from you. Listen, sometimes God adds in our lives by taking some things away. And sometimes those things are people. You're not too old. I read this week that the 50s, not the 1950s, but the 50s, the age 50s for men 
is their most dangerous time in life. It's the most dangerous time because usually in our 20s, we're preparing for a career and then just getting started. Then our 30s and our 40s, we're working as hard as we can toward that career. But then when the 50s hit, it sort of feels like you start that slow, um, I don't want to say decline, but you start to head toward retirement. And so you're not ramping up new things. You're not dreaming new dreams. Instead, you feel like you're wrapping something up. And it's tough in marriage because that 50-year-old man, he feels like he doesn't have anything to chase in the corporate world. So he goes and chases something else or someone else. Or depression sets in because he, feels, he looks around and he's not the 30-year-old anymore. He's 25 years older than that 30-year-old and hits a wall. Let me tell you something. You're not too old. Whatever age you are. Do we have any, anyone in the room? Now, I'm not talking about how you feel. I'm talking about your literal age. Is there anyone in the room 140? <laughs> no? Well, Abraham was 140 when he set Eleazar on this trek to go find a wife for Isaac. And he died when he was 175. He had 25, is that right? No, 35 more years, see math. 35 more years after this point right here. So if you're not 140, you have no excuses for not having a vision, not having a dream. Not have something you're aiming your life at. And let me give you this too, and I'm going to close up, man. If I don't, I'll be here a while. Let me, let me give you this. You're not too far gone. You hear me? You're not too far gone. Well, Jimmy, you, you, you don't know some of the things I've done. No, I don't. But I know you're not too far gone. I know that if you are still on this planet, God still has a redemptive purpose plan and vision for your life. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, and no matter what's been done to you, God is not finished with you. Listen to me. That divorce was not the end of your life. It might have been the end of that marriage. It might have been the end of that season, but it's not the end of your life. And maybe you feel like it is. But it isn't. And there are great people sitting in this room that probably felt like maybe you feel right now like they're never going to love someone else again or no one's ever going to love them again. I could point you to a half a dozen couples sitting right here in this room that could say that's not true. I did feel that way, but... Here I am. I'm in love again. I'm married again. I'm happy. God's working in my life. I hate that we treat, in the church, we treat divorce like it is the unpardonable sin. It's not. And it doesn't make you damaged. That addiction. 
that holds on to you so tightly. That is not you. And it might have a hold of you right now, but it can't hold you forever. And it can't give you any more power than what you let it have. You're not just a rape victim. You're not just a victim of incest. That hurt that you've had put on to you does not have to define you. That is not the end of God's plan and purpose for your life. Satan will tell you that it is. But you just remember that Satan is a liar. He's a deceiver. And he'll tell you that your life is over. He and his little construction company will help you build monuments to your past failures. Don't do that. And you are not today in Christ who you were without him. And if you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he doesn't look at you and see pornography. He doesn't look at you and see drug addiction. He doesn't look at you and see your past failures. He looks at you and sees someone he has redeemed that is full of all kinds of potential, potential he put into you. And if you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he's not looking at you now like you're a filthy wretch. Other people may. I give you that, but he doesn't. He looks at you and sees someone he loves, someone he cares about, someone he died for, someone he would die for if you were the only person on planet Earth. And Paul assures us that when we trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, we become a brand new creation. In Christ, you're not who you used to be. Have you been made over? Have you been recreated? Have you trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If you haven't, let me give you the opportunity to do that right now. Stand with me. And once you're standing, bow for prayer. Just say, Jesus, in the best way I know how, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. And I confess my sins to you. And listen, you don't have to name them. He knows them. Just you admitting that you're a sinner, that's enough for him. And now say, Jesus, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I ask you to accept me. I ask you to come into my heart, into my life. Be my Savior, my Lord. Fill me with the power of your Holy Spirit to begin following you today and for the rest of my life. And now say, Jesus, thank you for loving me and saving me. Now look back at me. I'm not finished. I'm not finished. But I want to say this. If you just prayed, and trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. On that connection card Diego talked about before the message, just fill that out. And somewhere on that card, write the letter B. That means that you're believing in Jesus today. And on your way out, drop that into the receiving basket so that we can have a record 
that we want to help you in your next steps. Now I want to pray for everyone again. So bow your head and close your eyes. I want to pray our memory verse over you. Proverbs 27, 12. It says, the prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and pay the penalty. And here's the prayer for that. Lord, give us a vision for the future. Give us sight to see not all the way down the road, but further down the road so that we can take care of that, so that we can see trouble as it's coming. And then give us the wisdom to know how to react when the trouble comes. Give us the wisdom to know how to react when we face problems as we pursue our dreams, our goals, our visions that you've given us. Give us the courage to do the right thing. And Lord, our courage, let it be tied to our faith in you. Give us the courage to serve, the courage to give, the courage to stay in the fight, the courage to keep the struggle, the courage to keep going when everything inside of us or everyone around us says that what we're doing is impossible. Jesus, thank you for loving us, for saving us. We pray in your strong, great, dependable name. Amen. Hey, um, I love you. I don't tell you that enough, but I love you and I appreciate you. But let me, let me tell you this. I don't love you like Jesus loves you. Nobody else does either. And Jesus loves you no matter who you are. Listen to me. Listen. Listen to me. He loves you no matter who you are, no matter where you've been in your life. Not just the last few weeks, but in college, in high school. He loves you no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, and no matter what's been done to you. And you remember that. Don't you forget it. God bless you.